Well, in the coming weeks, we're going to look together at Genesis chapter 1 through 4, where we get this vision of the garden of God. The beautiful picture, the picture that invites us not just to the garden, but to the gardener, to refreshment, to renewal, to growth, to fruitfulness. That's what we're talking about these weeks as we talk about evergreen. Let me say this. A story is true when it tells us what happened. But a story is truth when it has the power to change what will happen. Truth. Now, those who follow Jesus Christ have found that the early chapters of Genesis have proven to be both. They've proven, most importantly, to be truth that God spoke in the beginning and truth that God speaks today through Jesus Christ. So let's hear this truth together as we read. Pull out your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, which uh, should be on page 1 of any Bible, actually. I I hope. Uh, And I'm just going to invite you to relax, perhaps close your eyes, um, take a deep breath, and just listen to the power of this ancient, ancient word. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen closely. You're hearing God's holy word. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome, and it was so. God called the domes sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together in one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And the stars, God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. 
And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle, creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, the cattle of every kind, everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just heard never will. In 1839, Emma Darwin wrote a letter to her husband, Charles. I will write, she inks, knowing that my own dearest will indulge me. They were very tender with each other. The state of mind that I wish to preserve with respect to you is to feel that while you are acting conscientiously and sincerely wishing and trying to learn the truth, you cannot be wrong. But may not the habit in scientific pursuits of believing nothing till it is proved influence your mind too much in other things which cannot be proved in the same way and which, if true, are likely to be above our comprehension. I should say also that there is a danger in giving up revelation, in casting off what has been done for your benefit as well as for that of all the world. Interesting. It's a letter that is full of love, but it's also full of caution. She seems to be begging her dear beloved. She seems to be asking him, is it possible to discover what is true, but somehow lose track of the truth? Her husband saved that letter, and later the scientist would scribble at the bottom of the page, when I am dead, know that many times I have kissed and cried over this letter, C.D. In the beginning, God speaks a good word. Let there be. The word benediction that we'll use in a few minutes comes from the Latin for good word, to speak a good word. It means to speak a word from heaven that changes the world below, changes the future. And indeed, God in this text tells us, spoke in the beginning, and he speaks now as well. Genesis is an origin story, so we say. Darwin gave us the origin of the species. The community who gives us this origin story doesn't give us the origin of the species, doesn't give us the origin of a particular people or ethnicity, doesn't give us the origin even of the world as we know it today. This community gives us, I believe, the origin of good, 
of goodness itself. And God saw that it was good. This almost reads to me like a song with a refrain that weaves goodness into the fiber of the cosmos. Six times it's repeated, this refrain, climaxing at the end of the chapter, verse 31, where we get, and God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Now, if the scientist finds herself disappointed that this chapter is not written with the precision of modern science, she should know that she has something better. She has a word of truth, a word that stands behind her science, a word that is less concerned with the exactly how and the when than it is with the what and the why and ultimately the who. This is a word that describes for us, it gives witness to us to the sovereignty of good in all of creation. So this morning, I want to take a few minutes to consider the character of this good word with you. Let me suggest that the first word that God speaks is really a word of beauty. Beauty. It's a word that invites, that provokes us to engage our imaginations, to envision a lush and evergreen garden. It's a beauty that's beyond our comprehension, but it's not beyond the reach of our imagination. So picture a garden, the community seems to be saying. And I want to invite you to imagine Moses standing in a dry, hot wilderness in the desert. Just picture that. And the reason is that for, for generations, actually, since Darwin's day, we have loved to argue about the origin of this great origin story. But I, I think if we're to take the text in its own terms, we've, we've got to think of Moses and Moses in the wilderness. This, the text locates itself in the life of Moses. All of the five books of the Pentateuch, as we call them, the first five books of the Bible, situate themselves in the life of Moses. I think that Moses is substantially the author, but we understand that not the author in the sense in which we write books today, because Moses undoubtedly had editors and compilers who followed him. We know that. The book, the the Pentateuch transparently suggests that with the way it's organized. We also know that Moses had sources and traditions that he draws on. There are genealogies and ancient proto-historic stories that he weaves in. So we must picture Moses. And if Moses, then we're in the wilderness. At the end of Moses' life, he's standing short of the promised land. He won't live much longer. He won't even get to see the promise. And there he engages his imagination, recalling the great stories of Mount Sinai and the trials of slavery in Egypt. And before that, Abraham. And way, way, way before that, a lush, evergreen garden. He invites God's people to live not just with what's true, not just what's true about the ugliness in which they find themselves standing in the moment, but with the beauty of God's truth. He says, in effect, I know it's true that your feet are hurting. 
I know it's true that you're so tired of this food and the water that there's never enough. I, I know it's true that at every corner we've been opposed by hostile enemies. I know it's true that we are lost here in the wilderness, that we are losing our grasp on the promise of God and the God who gave us the promise. All of that is true. He doesn't deny it. But like Darwin's wife, Emma, he seems to beg them to engage their imagination so that they can lay a hold of that which surpasses comprehension. Imagine, he seems to suggest, moss underneath your feet, getting stuck between your toes. Uh, imagine gurgling rivers, flora, fauna, and fragrance, birds of the air, beasts of the field all around us, seed that has uh, its seed inside of it, vegetation, multiplying trees, bearing fruit. As if to us, even modern people today, we're meant to read this and to understand that no matter where you stand or I stand, and we may be standing today in the midst of disappointment, discouragement, distance, or even disease, even here we stand in God's beauty because the gardener is present to us as well and eager to refresh and to renew us right here in the arid wilderness. Someone, a Christian leader in a tragic situation said, even a broken tree bears fruit in the garden of God's grace. And I cling to that promise myself. Beauty, likely to be above our comprehension, is before us in Jesus Christ. Engage our imaginations to see this beauty, to see as God sees, and God saw that it was good. The first word God speaks is a word of beauty, but the second word is this. God speaks in his first word a word of delight. There is, commentators tell us, an approval formula in this text. It's that refrain, God saw that it was good. It's, it's, I like the phrase, it's an appro approval formula. We're eager for approval. And so it's interesting that we find it in the text. This word good isn't speaking so much of moral goodness as it is here in this text of aesthetic goodness. And so we have a God who's speaking existence into being and then stepping back almost like an artist with delight going, wow, that's really good. That's really good. This is a, uh, an exclamation of delight. DeWitt Jones, the renowned photographer who shot for National Geographic for many years, describes creativity as looking at the ordinary and seeing the extraordinary. He says creativity is like falling in love. It's falling in love with the world. I love that. And when we're in love with the world, we're in touch with a source of incredible energy. We call it passion. And I'd say it's God's passion. And we see it right here in Genesis 1. God is a passionate God. He's fallen in love with what he's made. And he exclaims in delight as he sees it coming into being. Never has the darkness seen anything as brilliant as this. And it's almost like God is singing here. Now, there's a debate over the genre of Genesis 1 in scholarly circles some say it seems like poetry, but it lacks some of the elements of Hebrew poetry. Others say it's more like prose, but it, it, it's so structured and rhythmic. Many of us think it, it's just kind of like a song, like a, like a ballad, 
a song that tells a story. God is singing. Now, now remember, if I'm right, this text gets brought before God's people by Moses in the wilderness. It's not written in a paradise. It's not written for, for people who are perfect. It's written on the other side of the fall. It's written for people like you and me, people with sore feet, people who are whiners, people who are doubters. And yet God is singing with delight over us. Make sure you catch that in Genesis 1. Make sure you see how pleased God is with who you are. You need to hear this in the depth of your soul. You are beautiful. You are good. You thrill me. You are awesome, inspiring, worthy. I delight in you. God looks at you and he sees, yes, the ordinary, but he sees the extraordinary in the ordinary because he's creative and he delights in you. Those of us who have found God's grace in Jesus Christ are learning to hear and live with an approval formula because that's our reality. Hear the music in this. You're good, you're right, you're beautiful, you're worthy. I oftentimes think when I read this passage of the Chronicles of Narnia, where C.S. Lewis envisions creation and Genesis 1 with a, a singing lion. Do you, do you remember this? Uh, it, um, the uncle's nephew, I think, is the one. And the, the, these children have dropped into a world not yet made, Lewis writes. It's all darkness. And then they begin to hear music and they begin to hear singing. And soon uh, a thousand, thousand stars spring up into the sky, constellations and planets. And then there's a growing gray light. And they can see the contours of hills and this music begins to get louder and soon there's this growing sense of joy in the air and their um, green grass, a carpet just shoots out and heather and roses and then trees come spiking up and the light changes from white to pink to gold and animals gather around the singing lion and join in this song of creation. This is what we're getting, a God who sings with delight and we need to hear this music as well. The first word God speaks is a word of beauty. It's a word of delight. It's also a word of hope. Because the one who speaks in the beginning will speak at the end. Even here at the beginning of the Bible, God's word points us forward to a world that will be better at the end even than it was at the beginning. This is the God of new beginnings. God speaks and things change, change. The future changes. Light breaks out in darkness. Life breaks out in death. Beauty breaks out in ugliness. Hope breaks out in despair. This is the God who gets the last word. And hope is living with the last word today. I want to say that again, because our mission is to share hope in Jesus Christ. And I want to make sure we get this. Hope is living with the last word today. I saw a guy who had a t-shirt on the other day and it said, I'm from the future. 
And I thought, me too. That's us, right? We're from the future because we have hope in Jesus Christ. We know someday God will fulfill all things in Jesus Christ. He gets the last word. He's the alpha, the beginning, and the omega, the end, the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I was on the Burke-Gilman Trail this past week, and I saw somebody riding to work, and it caught my attention because he was riding with a hockey stick in his hand. He was on rollerblades, and I could tell he was going to work because he had you know, a backpack on, and all the rest of us were on bikes or cars or you know, something normal. Here's a guy who's playing hockey on his way to work, and I looked, and I got, I got, who is this guy? There's no ice, there's no puck, there's no goal, there's no game. You know, it's June. And he thought about it, and I thought, this is interesting. This guy knows that winter is coming. And he's living with the future today. And this is the only guy that I know in Seattle is going to be ready when it comes. He's working out all day long so that when the ice comes, when there is a puck, when there is a goal, when, when there is a game, he's ready. Okay? That's a good picture to me of a Christian. We're living today with the furniture of heaven right here on earth. We're ready. So I think the danger is that we would adapt that we would adapt to our present environment. At this point, I think that's possible that Charles Darwin and Moses agreed on something. Because both of them seem to understand that creatures tend to adapt to their environment. During the Industrial Revolution, the peppered moths in London, you, you've heard this story, turned brown, sooty brown because uh, all the smokestacks and their emissions so polluted the air that the moths, the peppered moths, were kind of salt and pepper, whitish, turned brown to blend in. They adapted. And Moses seems to understand that there's a real risk that we will adapt to this present environment, that because in the wilderness the ground is hard, our hearts could become hard. Because in the wilderness the air is dry, our souls can become dry. Because in the wilderness our enemies are hostile, our words can become hostile to one another. And he's saying, don't adapt to that. Live with this, with this rich imagination that's been furnished by the lushness of this garden. Hold on to that vision so that you might adapt to it. That's the environment. This garden is the environment to which you adapt. And if you can adapt to this environment by engaging your imagination, perhaps we will become a people who create good things, highly creative, people who learn how to bless, to speak good words in other people's lives, people who live by love and not hate, people who see things that are not the way they are, and people who do what we need to do in order to see that they become good. Somewhere in London, there was a moth on a smokestack that was brown. But on the other side of town, underneath the smokestack at a hearth, there was a man named C.S. Lewis smoking a pipe and dreaming dreams. And things would get very hard for C.S. Lewis. If you know his life, you know, he lost his beloved wife. He married her late in life. It just crushed him. He traveled through the worst kind of wilderness in sorrow and grief, and yet... He never stopped singing that song because Aslan had a grip on him. He never stopped living with hope. And God saw that it was good. Well, history has preserved for us another letter from Emma Darwin. 
and I'll read it to you from it. This one was sent just a few months before the one from which I read earlier. This one was written in 1838. She writes this. Will you do me a favor? She's writing to her husband. Yes, I'm sure you will. It is to read our Savior's farewell discourse to his disciples, which begins at the end of the 13th chapter of John. She says, it is so full of love to them and devotion and every beautiful feeling. It's the part of the New Testament I love best. She points him to Jesus. She points him to the Word made flesh who stands behind, mysteriously, incomprehensively, but beautifully behind his science, the one who has stepped out from behind his science and into our lives very personally. How else could we know the truth? Evolution might tell you what's true, but it won't tell you the truth in that sense. Annie Dillard wrote, evolution loves death more than it loves you and me. And Emma Darwin pointed her husband to life and love in Jesus. She points him first to his yearnings. Do you notice the love and the devotion and these feelings, every beautiful feeling? These are things for which the scientist has a hard time giving account. I actually recently got a lovely invitation from a brilliant neuroscientist who invited me to dinner because he was curious. He wanted to speak with a believer about what he called the moral compass. He knows the brain better than few who have ever lived, and yet he can't quite take account for what he's observed. The moral compass is in every culture throughout time. People seem to have this. Where does this come from? He was curious. She doesn't, though, just point to these sorts of yearnings. She points to revelation. Remember I said in the earlier letter, she talked about revelation. Don't give up revelation. Because truth ultimately is a person. The one who spoke the first word and speaks the last word steps into life today as the living word and speaks to us today as Jesus Christ. The word of God who is a word of beauty for our ugliness. Word of God who is a word of delight for our belovedness. The word of God who is a word of hope for our waywardness. And so brothers and sisters, let's agree together. Let there be life. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the mystery of your grace. It's true that you have done in Jesus Christ more than we could ask or imagine. We pray, therefore, that you would send forth your Holy Spirit again to refurbish our imaginations, that you might renew our lives, that you might change future, and that we could be part of it. Pour out your Spirit in a fresh way on each and every one of these precious people. Touch us with your love, we pray. We do believe, but help us in our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.